Welcome to episode 2 of the Plus One to Hit podcast. My name's James and I'm your host. First off, let's catch up with Mark and Graham to see what they've been up to. First off, we're going to catch up with Graham and Mark, see what we've been doing over the last few weeks. How you doing, guys? We're doing good. How are you, mate? You all right? Not too bad. You know, it's only taken me about 15 takes to get this far, isn't it? But, you know. It's <laughs> all <laughs> part of the fun, though. How about you, Mark? You all right? Very, very well. Good stuff. So, obviously, it's been quite a busy couple of weeks in terms of releases of models and stuff coming out generally, really, across several of the ranges for GWE. Is there anything that's really stood out for you guys? I think for me, it's the Grey Knights. I mean, the uh, the Thousand Suns do look really good. But I think of all the Imperial forces out there, the Grey Knights have always been one of my favourite. I think it's that kind of specialist chapter, sort of demon hunting background they have. Um, some really You've good just got a penchant well. for silver armour, haven't you? I think I do, yeah. I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> Between the Grey Knights and the Iron Warriors, yeah. You got got for a lot of got for a lot of bolt gun metal over the years, but no. To be fair, the new rules look really good. I think you know they should really be a a small compact army that you know is resilient and obviously packs a punch at the same time. And I've always thought the Nemesis weapons were just really cool, and the armor just looks amazing. Just flicking through some articles that have been on the uh, Games Workshop website, the new Castle and Crow model is amazing. Oh right really? What, what what's he like? Because I used to have I used to have a Grey Knight's army back in the day as you probably remember but yeah, um, and i always thought that model was pretty cool but he was very static wouldn't he what, what's the new one like yeah it's very kind of similar it's it's same sort of pose he's got the same sort of detailing and he's got the same specialist sword and stuff that sort of i think it's like a demon in itself but he's kind of like more like commanding so he's kind of like looking sort of looking a bit more menacing the swords kind of almost has like a motion to it yeah so like it's kind of flaming off it and stuff yeah it just looks more it just looks a lot more imposing um, he's also sort of helmet, well. isn't it? Is he a, a firstborn space marine, or has he gone through the Rubicon Primaris? Uh, I don't believe he had. I don't believe he's a Primaris. I don't oh. believe so. Again, I could be wrong on that. That could, that could be my bad. Yeah, he just looks a lot more menacing, and uh, yeah, he's, he's also got no helmet now as well. So that always cool. adds a bit more character to a space marine character, doesn't it? When you've got all yeah. the, the rank and file, got their helmets. But yeah, he looks really cool. He does look really, really good. So yeah, the rules are pretty, um, pretty awesome actually. So what, what is there anything that stands out? Well, I, I literally haven't seen any of this. It looks pretty good. I think the biggest rule that I've seen so far that I quite liked was, um, and I believe I'm right in saying this, the Aegis now allows you to ignore a mortal wound on a 5+. plus. Oh, Which is pretty nice. Cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Um, so, you know, it kind of represents, I think, their kind of unshakable will. And, you know, so they're very, a very psychic army, as are the Thousand Suns, which is why obviously they've released them together. But I think they might have done before, actually. But um, yeah, I thought that was a pretty cool rule. So when you say the Aegis, are you talking about their Aegis armour or are you talking about the Aegis as in as in their psychic ability, the Aegis in their squads? I think it's part of their armour. Oh, man. Yeah, there we go. I've, just, I've, just, I've literally just found it. The armour worn by the Grey Knights is inscribed with hexagramic wards. And in conjunction with the purity of spirit and psychic might of the wearer, they can resist otherworldly attacks. Nice. Wow. And you're not going to start recollecting this army, are you, Graham, for at least another five years, right? <laughs> I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure. We'll see. <laughs> I've always, the Grey Knights are just one of those armies. That they're, they're just, the models are amazing. They're just so smart. Um, I've also just realised, actually, sorry, this rule also, if the unit is a psycho, which most of them are, they also get add one to deny the witch tests. Man. Oh, nice. So that basically means that every single dude has got the equivalent of a psychic hood. Basically, yeah. 
man. That's pretty nice. I haven't seen as much around the Thousand Suns. Yeah, I was just about to say about the Thousand Suns that the, um, to be honest, uh, now make a note of the time and date here, guys. If I was ever going to play a Chaos Force, I would probably want to do Thousand Suns with Sench Demons. Oh, controversial. Especially as a Space Force player. That's quite I know, a I know. But um, I really, really love the post-heresy blue with the sort of Egyptian styling. I, I think they're really, really striking. One of yeah. the most beautiful Space Marine armies I ever saw was actually um, one time going up to, to Warhammer World. This was way back when. This was when I could see. So that I think the the Thousand Suns model range was really, really limited. You know, there was like two boxes or something. But there was a guy there. He probably had, I don't know, 750, 1,000 points worth of stuff. He had a couple of Dreadnoughts characters. It is the most beautifully painted Thousand Suns army I've ever seen. It was incredible. He had some demons in there as well, and they were just brilliant. He'd done them in a a kind of sort of pearlescence to their blue. It was just oh, wow. awesome. It was really awesome. Um, that, so that's kind of what I've got in my head as a picture for the ideal Thousand Suns army in terms of models. The refresh range they release is so smart, like especially the characters, like all the sorcerers. They're so dynamic, and they just look really cool. Aramon especially uh, looks yeah, amazing, he was as he should cool, do. Wouldn't he? As yeah, he, should he do, was yeah. always a good character. Heard it here first, guys. If I was ever going to do it, that's what I'd probably do. I probably will never do it, to be honest, because I'm not really a, a chaosy player. But Come to the dark side, James. You know you want to. <laughs> says, says the man thinking about having great. I lives. know. I know. Trust me. I have fleet so much. It's terrible. I've always, I've, always got, I've always got my Iron Warriors Legion there as my kind of go-to. But I, yeah, when it comes to new releases and stuff, I'm like the... I'm like the the magpie with the shiny things. I'm like, oh, wow, yeah. this this is good. Oh, I could do yeah. that. Oh, I could do this. It's terrible. It's really bad. Oh, it's so tempting though, isn't it? I mean, GW are releasing models at such a fierce rate of knots these days that, you know, and the things they release, they're not rubbish. You know, they're just gorgeous, gorgeous models. I see it. And they've so, just released the um, the plastic Krieg Imperial Guard models as part of the kill team. Oh, as well. I know. Which yeah, the kill like a, team box, man. Yeah, which has caused a massive wave on some of the, on some of the forums and stuff. Obviously, the Krieg army have traditionally been a forge rod army and been absolutely horrendously expensive. Yeah. So the fact that they're now potentially bringing out plastic versions has got a lot of people quite excited. You get a unit of them in the new um, kill team box. That's right. Yeah, that's where I've seen them. Yeah, they, they look really yeah. smart. And the new Orc Commandos, they're really cool as well, by all accounts. Yeah, they are, again. Yes. I spoke about this before, the Orcs. The Orcs are cool, and the new the new look as well. I'm, I'm loving it. It's it's really smart. So, yeah, it's, it's not good. It's not good. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Mark? Anything standing out for you? One thing I'm really looking forward to is the uh, the Warhammer animations, hopefully, uh, obviously, coming with uh, the Warhammer Plus subscription later on this year and early next year. So I think that's, like, for me, like, as such a cartoon fan, to to actually now see Warhammer properly come to life with animations is just like almost like a dream come true. So that's something that I'm keeping a very close eye on and I can't wait to be released. Yeah, I think that'd be really cool. I'm, I'm gutted on not to be able to see those, to be honest. And you can pretty much guarantee they won't have any audio description, but I don't, to be perfectly honest, I don't think audio description would be able to do something like that true justice but you know maybe i'll just make i'll just sit down with one of you guys and force you to describe it in immense detail to me well i'm going to be watching them over and over again so at some point (laughs) mate i'll be able to recite them to you word for word i'm more more than happy to sit and watch the iron warriors one with you james all right cool okay (laughs) i'm gonna hold you to that 
I'm very excited for that one. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine you going, oh, no, I don't worry. He's, he's squashing the skull of that ultramarine. Yeah. And I'll be like, it's all right, he's an ultramarine. <laughs> no one likes that, it's fine. I'm pretty sure you probably have, Graham, because it was back in the day, but whether you have, Mark, I don't know. Have you ever seen the opening animation sequences for the Dawn of War games? Yes. They're so cool. I can, re- I can remember the first one really, really clearly with the Blood Ravens versus the Orcs. And I'm not sure I ever actually saw the one for the third game, but I still remember that initial Dawn of War one. And occasionally if I, I pop it onto YouTube and just listen to it, because you can actually track the storyline from the sounds that are happening. So there's the bit where the Dreadnought kicks down that wall and just opens up with his assault mm-hmm. cannon. That's just mm-hmm. so cool. It really is cool. And the bit where That's the sergeant games. runs up the hill and fights the orc and sort of slashes the chopper out of the way, shoots the orc in the face, then turns and kills another one. Then he gets taken down. It's just so cool. Those games are so good. And the, yeah, those trailers, there was one of them. I can't remember if it was number two or number three that was with the Tyranids. And um, there was a dreadnought. I think that was number three, wasn't it? Three. The Tyranids. I think yeah, it was, was three. There was a dreadnought chasing like, the Howling Banshees like set wow. on fire and then there was um a far seer fighting a space marine captain i think he dispatched her off and then suddenly a lictor appeared and then all the wow. uh, spore mines came out came out of the sky it was uh i can't remember the exact yeah it was pretty good it was another good one well, i think i must have seen the second one once or twice because i seem to remember in the second one there was some warp spiders materializing and taking out space marines and then disappearing and re- rematerializing a little bit further away and stuff. I'm it sure might be the same I one, actually. That. I, th- I think that might be the same one because they, they released it in stages, if I remember. So it started off with just the space marines against the Eldar. And then they, as the game got nearer to release, the sort of the Tyranid scenes got introduced. Yeah. They, it could have been two, it could be three, I can't remember. But they were great games. The Dawn of War games are amazing. I, I played those and they were really, yeah. really good. Wicked. Well, there you go. If you haven't checked them out, guys and girls. Get yourself on YouTube and do a search for Dawn of War opening trailer or opening sequence and uh, you better have a look at them for yourself. They're really, really cool. And considering the age of them as well, I mean, that first Dawn of War one's got to be 18, 19 years old. It's got to be, isn't it? At least. So I'm going to have to say it, guys. Dragon Riders. (laughs) I am so excited about these Dragon Riders, I tell you. But the ironic thing is, Yes, I'm a Stormcast Eternals player. I'm probably not going to use them for Stormcast Eternals. I'm probably going to do some sort of conversion for my Storm Dragons, a Space Marine army, because for ages I've been saying, oh man, I want to get some sort of dragon for them to ride or something like that. But the biggest thing I'm struggling with at the moment, um, and I was saying this to Mark the other day, is that doing the conversion of the model is not a problem but it's what that model represents on the tabletop, which is the problem, because I don't really want to have a model that awesome just representing a land speeder. (laughs) You know, I want the guy to have a massive halberd and a big shield and something like that. But um, I think the nearest thing would probably be something like Thunderwolf Cavalry that the Space Wolves have, but of course they can't fly, so you couldn't really use them as a representation. I could even go down the route of something like a, just a captain with a jump pack. He'd still have the same number of attacks and stuff. It'd just be, I don't know, it depends on how, how much you could skew it, really. 
But I, either way, I'm going to end up doing something with them. There's going to be a ridiculous amount of conversions and you know makeups that people are going to do with them, isn't there? There's just no doubt about that. So it, it might be worth just holding off and just seeing what what other people do because it's not going to take long for people to start jumping on it and and really going to town on them. I don't think. Yeah, that's 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 fair comment. Of course, there's been a quite a lot of negativity towards them online not because they're not awesome models because they really are but you know it's like oh another stormcast eternals release which to be honest i even as a stormcast eternals player i can understand that and i do really feel for some of the factions that haven't had any new models for years but on the flip side of that imagine in six months time or however long it is when they drop the new dragon riders for the lumineth or the undead dragons imagine what they're going to be like I just think they're going to be wicked. Is that what they're doing? Are they planning to release different dragons for the different factions? I I honestly can't see how they can't how they wouldn't. I really can't because if you think back through Warhammer Fantasy, I think nearly every faction had some sort of dragon rider or yeah, wise right, or, or something, something like similar. Yeah, I think they did. Even actually. orcs, even orcs. Had mm. You know, so I I. I just can't imagine that they wouldn't do that. I mean, at the end of the day, they'll, they're gorgeous models that people are going to want to buy. At the end of the day, GW are a business, aren't they? You know, yeah, whichever way you look at it, they're going to want to sell more <laughs> models. And I can't imagine there's anybody that's got an army that's going to see this gorgeous new dragon, dragon rider for their particular faction and not going to want to buy it. Nah. I wasn't aware the Stormcast Eternals had the same sort of uh, emotion stirring as the Space Marines. It always makes me laugh whenever there's like a new release tease for 40k. Everyone's there's some smart person in the comments has put Primaris Lieutenant question mark. Yeah, like, it's they released like what like 20 versions of them. Yeah, I mean <laughs> you know the, the Stormcast Eternals really are the AOS equivalent of Space Marines, which to be honest is partly why I went for that army because they're really 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 easy to get hold of the models. <laughs> you know they're. The, the basic models are dirt cheap. You can pick a unit up off of off of eBay or something. And, uh, you know, because I wasn't as invested as everybody else with AOS in the first place, I didn't want to go and dump a load of cash into something that I potentially wasn't going to enjoy. As it's turned out, I've really enjoyed building the models. The, the guy that's painted them for me, Chris Beaumont. Uh, hello, Chris, if you're listening. He's done a beautiful job on them. And I've really started getting into the lore and the backstory of, of the Stormcast Eternals and generally with AOS as a gaming system, actually, I've, I've been really quite enjoying it. I find it quite a bit more engaging than the old Warhammer Fantasy. But then I never really got into that when I was much younger anyway. So I think I'm appreciating it more now, I'm a bit older. Yeah, I tried, yeah. To get back into, I tried to get into Fantasy back in the day. Uh, obviously, I started a Chaos Army. Um, but it was just like ranks of as i remember it it was like ranks of units on movement trays that just kind of ran forward and just fought yeah, it wasn't really i don't know like I, maybe it was just me you know i only had a few games and kind of it fell by the wayside for me but whereas 40k seemed a bit more dynamic and you had like different versions of deployment and you could you know people with jump packs or bikes or wings that could fly around and do different things you kind of ended up with some quite nice scenarios where and i appreciate that you know traditional battle is like that you know, if you watch anything like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, you know, all those scenes, I suppose are like that. But it just felt a bit like charge, run forward and charge. And that was it. Yeah, oh, I found the same, okay. to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I really did. Um, well, you were quite adverse about collecting it, weren't you, like James, originally? Uh, cause, you know, when, I don't know when, what you mean. When, when sort of, I don't know yeah. what you mean. <laughs> um, 
because it was quite a, a bit of like a, a real I had to really sort of twist your arm to to really think about it and it, I, I think it was um like I say primarily Jim that really wanted to to start playing it because that's that sort of he really loves that fantasy side of stuff and I think at the end of the day to be fair I think you know yeah, I think it's good that we started playing it because again, it just gives us a bit more of a dynamic to it. Again, from a model perspective, they're just nice models as well, aren't they? Oh, so it's just something else they to really paint play. Yeah, they look amazing. So Jim and I have actually had our first game now. It was interesting. It was good fun actually. We we uh, it, we learned a lot. That's all I'm going to say for now. <laughs> no, well, I'm looking forward to the battle report on it. That's for sure. So, what about models that we've been working on? Have you been doing anything, guys? Yeah, so obviously at the moment, again, just just going back to my glorious mechanical Necrons. So yeah, so I've just basically just been painting up those. So I was, I was hoping to get quite a lot done over over all the lockdowns and things, and it just turned out that my industry turned into a nightmare, and I was working too much. So, but I've recently just got in, uh, just got back into um, uh, sort of painting them up, and as they're on the uh, the Instagram and things, you'll be able to see what they look like and the and and, and the color scheme that I'm going for. But effectively, they're just going to be you know, to sort of look just rusty, old, grim, you know, like they've just woken up out of years of being underneath a swamp, painting them all to effectively like a battle-ready standard, but just leaving enough opportunity so that if I wanted to go back to them and and touch them up and, and try to make them, you know, just a little bit nicer and pop out more in certain spaces, then there's definitely the opportunity to do it. They just need to look dirty and grimy and just old and that's the kind of look that i'm uh that i'm going for with them they look really good yeah they do um I, you know sort of sarah had a look at them and she said they look pretty cool <laughs> she did say actually she saw i think it was the lynch guard when i put them up on instagram <laughs> yeah she was like is that blood is that blood <laughs> on them i said no mark it probably is yeah <laughs> so i'm well, assuming that you put a little sort of sprays of blood or something on them yeah, well, I had to, and I've, I've sort of like put it on like you know uh, certain you know, some of the shields because the, the shields have got like spikes at the bottom where you can just like imagine like knocking someone down and then just like decapitating someone with like the bottom of the shield type thing. So um, yeah, I've just put a bit of blood on them, and they and, and and the way they walk and the way they've been modelled, you know, with the like sort of, uh, the uh, swords over their shoulders, and one of them's like dragging like the sword on the floor as well. So they just look oh. like they've just you know, just come out of like a massive street fight with someone. And so, yeah, there had to be, there had to be a bit of blood on there. So have you been sort of batch painting them or just doing them a squad at a time or a dude at a time or how, how have you been kind of approaching it? No, so I've taken sort of a squad and then just doing just one paint at a time. Because um, then by the time you've, apart from, you know, washes take a bit longer to dry because they'll see a lot more watery. Um, but the standard paints themselves, like by the time you've, painted your last one the first one's kind of dry so you could so it's almost you can just keep like continuously paint but it does also mean then as well like from a because i'm a, a relatively impatient person when it comes to to sort of painting and things so it does then mean that you can see like once you've got like so far in one model you've kind of got that far on all the others so it kind of just gives you that I suppose that 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 sort of that mental thing so you can see the progress throughout the whole squad rather than just doing one model right I've re I've gone to town on that model now I've got four more of the the little blighters to do um yeah so it, it just kind of just gives you that that momentum to keep going with it as well yeah I'm, well back in the I, I used to take the same approach when I used to do 
I used to do a little bit of commission painting for people back in the day when I could see and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, yeah, it was funny enough. It was a Warhammer Fantasy set of models, and it was a guy gave me fifty high elf spearmen to do. And I don't know whether you guys have ever seen the photographs of high elf spearmen or not from Warhammer Fantasy, but they're basically all the same mm-hmm. models standing with a shield and a spear in a in a detention position. Yeah. And there's um, so like a, the whole unit is like that, but then you've got like a champion which is slightly different and like a banner bearer which is slightly different again but that was it and i had 50 of them and i the approach that you've just described is exactly how i did those and it it felt i i said to him i gave him gave him back to him and he was really happy with them but i said i gave him back to him i said i never want to paint another high off ever ever <laughs> it was just <laughs> it, it was just painful it really was but no they were cool but and they did look really good you know when they were all ranked up and everything, they did look really smart. But good grief, yeah. painting them was oh, it was it was a it was like pulling teeth. It was horrible. It's one of the things that me off an orc army. It's just the sheer number oh, of all that. Well, green. this is it. I'm not looking forward. I'll be honest to sitting there and painting up sixty Necron warriors. That's that's that, that is a job I'm putting till last. I'm going to be honest. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, but they do look good. Like I say, it's it's just once they're all painted, don't they? And they're all sat there and they're all stood and they just you know, and you've yeah, and you've painted them. It just, it just gives you that sort of sense of achievement without sounding too cheesy, if that makes sense. Yeah. Have you got? I don't know if you guys are aware of this. There's a guy that's done a bucket of grots, and it's like a thousand points of Gretchen or something, and every model is a Gretchen. Um, and they're all the they're all the very basic ones in a mono pose and uh, he's done a thousand points and he i mean it's all you know he has good fun with it he goes to games and stuff and he just gets the bucket just tips them out onto the table and he's got and yeah he's one game he's gone won quite a few games with it i think but yeah it's quite good try try and look it up it's quite entertaining nice (laughs) i'll have to have a look so something i've been working on uh over the last couple of weeks is i think i mentioned in episode one that uh, a couple of my boards were away being painted well they're actually on their way back now so i'm just finalizing my next two so that's going to expand that whole sort of environment and um i actually posted the photos that the the guy who's doing them for me dave smith hello dave if you're listening he sent me some photos i posted them up on the sump city radio group on facebook and they got a lot of likes and comments um obviously you know the people in the group know that i'm blind so they know that i've sort of made them all myself and uh what i'd sort of said in my post there was that dave and i had actually had pretty constant communication throughout the whole painting process and um you know he's been amazing i sort of laid out what i wanted to try and achieve with the overall feel of these boards and he clearly got it straight away We've been talking about whether the pipe should be this colour or that colour, how much rust should be coming out of them in this area or whether they'd be less corroded in this area. And, you know, should there be sort of bullet impacts in the walls, maybe the odd blood spatter, you know, sort of dried blood on the wall where somebody's sort of been shot and it's sort of splattered up against the door or the wall or something like that. And, oh man, it's just been brilliant. And on one of the boards, there's I, I'd made a little... Uh, a sort of wrecked ammo stash i made it up of some old tamiya uh brick wall bits that i had laying around and uh, it's all sort of crumbled and broken away and uh, the roof is made up of individual sort of strut 
pieces. And in there, I put a couple of ammo boxes and stuff like that. Uh, Dave loved this. And he sort of said, oh, man, I've got, I've got some sort of backpacks and stuff, you know, to represent a sort of grab bag and stuff like that. And he put some sort of rifles in the back. But he had a, uh, like a, a, a stray dog model. Mm. And he sent me the picture and I was like, right. And uh, he, we had sort of had a chat backwards and forwards and he sort of put some cybernetics on it. And so there's this dog guarding this ammo dump and I've called him Fang, but uh, yeah, it's really nice. cool. And he, he's done it. He's done it all sort of, um, all sort of dirty and grimy. And uh, you've got this, uh, you've got this cybernetic stuff on him and stuff. I've really been enjoying that whole process. So uh, that should be really, really cool. But actually, I just want to do a shout out to Sump City Radio. The guys there have been great. Thanks to Steve for uh, allowing me to promote this podcast in his group. Uh, that's just wicked. You know, they're such a great bunch of guys there. If you're into your Necromunda, they're a Necromunda uh, sort of podcast and group. Definitely check them out. Listen to the podcast. Episode 13 has just been released and it's all about being a newbie to Necromunda and it's well well worth listening to if you're thinking about getting into Necromunda if you're completely new to it and don't know where to start if you've just started and are struggling a little bit their their episode 13 will be absolutely great to listen to I'm about three quarters of the way through it and it's really really good so that's Sump City Radio definitely worth checking out that's awesome guys I mean Obviously, we've all been busy in our own ways for the last uh, last few weeks and that. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens with new releases um, moving forward. Obviously, we've got a month until our next episode. So time will tell, won't it? And uh, I'm sure we'll have, have some more games between now and then. And uh, it'll be really good to catch up at that point. So thanks very much for your time. And we'll speak to you soon. Yeah, speak to you soon. Cheers, Ray. Take care. In episode one, I gave you the first part of my blind hobby story. In this episode, I wrap that up by talking about how I play games. In episode one, I gave you an overview of my entry into the hobby and the beginnings of my blind hobby story. This episode, I'm going to talk about how I managed to play games with no vision at all. So, on the surface of it, you may think you can just feel the models and move them around the table. But actually, it does become a little bit more complex than that when it comes to rolling dice, measuring distances, and generally picturing the battlefield in your mind. So perhaps the best place to start would be the tools that I use to help me play the games. Well, there aren't many, to be honest. Firstly, I use tactile dice. They're standard D6, except for the dots on the faces of the dice are raised pips. Second, I use either a tactile tape measure or one of those 18-inch long measuring sticks that have come in so many Games Workshop games over the years. Generally, I'll use the 18-inch measuring stick more often than not. This is because it's straight, so it's a great way of me checking line of sight without actually being able to see. The other benefit, if you've got one at home, if you turn it over, you'll notice that each inch is marked with a slightly raised notch. So it's really easy for me to run my thumb across the bottom of that stick, feel each notch, count the number of inches, and make my measurements accordingly. So really, the only downside to that is that it's only 18 inches long. And if I'm firing a heavy bolter or 
las cannon or something similar with a longer range then obviously i need a lot more distance this is where the tactile tape measure can come in handy because it can be easily rolled up i can bunch it up in my hand and just measure out the 48 inches or whatever it happens to be for the longer range weapon two other things i use in my games are my iphone and my laptop obviously we've got things like the warhammer 40,000 app and we've got the aos app which are pretty accessible i can access my data sheets and things like that and check rules and all that sort of stuff which is pretty cool but to be honest i do find it a little bit clunky to be switching backwards and forwards between data sheets and battle plans and war scrolls and what have you so what i actually do is i type out my own data cards or war scrolls on documents on my computer which means that I'm then able to access those documents in-game and navigate to a point on that document to look at a weapon profile or check a psychic power or whatever it may be. So that pretty much covers the tools that I use to play games. But how about the practicalities? Well, as you can imagine, picturing a battlefield in your mind is very, very different to looking at one. So there's a couple of things that I do to kind of get my head around this and help build that map in my head. So the first thing is, once the terrain's all been placed, I'll spend a couple of minutes just feeling around the terrain, feeling where the ruins are, the line of sight blocking terrain is, where there are craters, woodlands, rocky outcrops, and all that sort of stuff. I do tend to do that on my own. But often my opponent can chip in and just point something out to me. Or sometimes if it's a particularly complex battlefield with lots of varying height terrain and lots of detail in the terrain, then I may even ask them to sort of guide my hand to certain parts just so I can have a good feel around that area of the battlefield and get a good picture in my head. When it comes to things like deployment, obviously a lot of games these days have alternating deployment. So... I'll deploy one unit, my opponent will deploy one unit, and so on and so forth. To be honest, regardless of how the deployment works in terms of the mission, what we'll tend to do is each time my opponent has placed a unit or placed his whole army, I'll then quickly ask him or her to point out where those units are. And that might be as simple as me just going around to their side of the table and just lightly putting my fingers down just to locate where each unit is in relation to that whopping great building that's blocking them from line of sight or whatever it may be. So naturally, deployment is a little bit slower than it otherwise would be, but ultimately it is worth it because it means I've got that picture of the battlefield in my brain and to be honest, it's really no skin off my opponent's nose. So moving into the actual game proper, Obviously, depending on the game, the sequencing might be slightly different. But if I take 40k as an example, we have our command phase, our movement phase, our psychic phase, our shooting phase, our charge phase, our fight phase, and our morale phase. So generally, just like everybody else, I'll declare what I want to do with the unit before I actually move it or shoot or charge or fight. And of course, that's a two-way street. My opponent will do the same as well. My opponents will probably tell you if you were to speak to them is that I do ask questions, although I am quite mindful of trying not to ask those questions when they're right in the middle of trying to move a complex unit or make sure their measurements are correct and so on and so forth. 
so I'll generally try and hold off asking any questions until they've at least finished doing what they're doing. When it comes to measuring distances and removing slain models and so on and so forth, I'm pretty much the same as everybody else really. I'm just maybe a little bit slower measuring my distances simply because I need to do it from a tactile perspective. And obviously, if I know somebody's got a beautifully painted army or spindly little models which are easy to break, then rather than me removing my hulking great space marines that are right next to them, I might ask the opponent to just remove the models for me. Certainly the last thing I'd ever want to do is end up ruining somebody's army. And to be honest with you, that's pretty much it. Obviously I don't mean to make that sound as flippant as it probably does, because ultimately it is quite mentally taxing, but... I get a huge amount of enjoyment out of it. We always have good games. I don't win all the time. I don't lose all the time. But the important thing is we have fun. So just as a final piece of information that really could be useful for anybody, not just people with visual impairment, you can actually use smart speakers to roll dice for you. And there are some apps available on smartphones and tablets and indeed smart watches, which will allow you to do similar. So for example, Alexa, Roll 2d6. I rolled two dice and got six and six for a total of twelve. There you go, so that's a good example. There's a great little dice app on the Apple Watch called Dice Free, which allows you to roll multiple numbers of multiple-sided dice for varying game applications. So, for example, if I wanted to roll 3d6 on my Dice Free app... I can flick up on my Apple Watch to choose the number of dice. Two, three. And I can flick left or right to determine how many sides the dice has. Four, six, eight, six. There you go, so six. So I'm going to roll 3d6. So now all I do is tap my watch face. 18. So that's rolled 18 because it's totaled them together. Now if I wanted to just get individual scores. Two. One. I can just move it down to one dice and I can roll them multiple times. One. My typical roll. Six. Three. So there you go. So I've just rolled 3d6 individually and got a score of one, then a score of six, then a score of three. So there's multiple ways you can do that. So for games like Inquisitor, obviously we use 10-sided dice quite a lot more. 8, 10. So I've just moved it to 10-sided dice. I'm going to roll two 10-sided dice. Let's say I'm rolling against a ballistic skill of 64. So I'd need to roll two separate d10. The first d10 is my 10s. 7. So that's 70. And the second d10 will be my units. 1. So ultimately... I would have failed that because I've rolled 71 against a ballistic skill of 64. So there's multiple applications for a, a great little app like this, and it's so handy because it's just on my wrist. It works really, really well. So as you can see, technology can play quite a big part in playing games, just generally for everybody, but for people like myself with no vision, things like these little apps and the smart speakers can make a world of difference, particularly if you forget to pick up your tactile dice. Next, we're going to talk about some Inquisitor. Okay, so we've got a new section in the show today. This is all about Inquisitor. 
We only play Inquisitor once a year. This is mainly because our GM is actually only available for three months of the year due to how her work patterns fall. So what we do is we have a mission campaign style thing, which is written by me, but then is passed over to the GM and she works her wicked magic on it. This year, there's actually the biggest group we've ever had. So there's been myself. My character is called Veteran Sergeant Lucius Blaine, and he's an Astro Militarum veteran. He's a pretty good all-rounder. He's one of two survivors of his regiment, the Tracation 43rd, and he's equipped with flak armor, a smoke grenade, a combat knife, a pump-action shotgun, and a bolt pistol which he earned in battle and was passed down to him from his owning surviving comrade, a lieutenant. There's been Graham. Hello. My character was called Aurelia. She is a death cult assassin, very much in the mould of kind of Trinity slash Catwoman slash the twins from Mortal Kombat. So kind of a bit of a glass hammer. Um, She's got a, a sword, which has got poison on it. And she carries like throwing knives as well. Uh, very acrobatic, very lethal in combat, but doesn't have the best armour in the world, unfortunately. There's been Jim. Hello. My character was Astrid. Uh, she's an enforcer. She also had a cyber master called Skane, who was awesome, but had some uh, debilitating injuries from a previous mission. I didn't put him back together very well. Astrid has got a shock maul, a force shield and a las pistol. Her background is is from like raiding, like a, a sort of a pirate sort of background, and uh, raiding planets for for technology and things like that. She's a a bit of a nutter, uh, goes into combat very quickly, and uh, causes problems. There's been Mark. Hello, my character is called Preacher Bruce. He is a beer bellied bloke that walks around in robes with a massive great hammer he uh, was basically brought into this because he was taking solitude on a planet in the outer rims if you like and uh, it kind of got wiped out by a plague of nurgles and now he's on a, a rampage through the galaxy to seek revenge for his fallen planet and a newbie to the fold we have david bonjour my character's name is Marcus Dedeidion. His parents were building weapons for the Adeptus Mechanicus, uh, caused an accident and were killed for it. So he grew up in gangs and uh, became a really good shot. And he's now a mercenary. He holds a revolver and a stubber and basically he's there to make money more than anything. So yeah, that's Deadeye. So the way we actually played the game this year was quite different. What we actually did was we conducted it over Zoom and our GM, Sarah, and I were at home because Sarah's my partner. We had a table set up with the Inquisitor miniatures, with terrain, etc., etc. And we had one camera in a permanent position giving an overview of the battlefield. And we had a roaming camera, which was basically my phone, which we could then pass around to get model's eye views and things like that. And it actually worked really, really well. So, guys, how did you find that? Because obviously it's the first time we've ever really done anything like that. I thought it worked really well. It was really useful to have that constant view of the battlefield, as you say. But it was really handy as well, especially when we started to get into combat and people were starting to move around in close proximity of buildings and we were trying to work out 
what we could see and stuff. The roaming cam was equally useful. I personally would just pin certain cameras onto my Zoom and it worked really well. You know, I felt like I was pretty much there, but obviously we were, you know, safe and you know, all separated as per the rules at the time when we started. So I think it worked really well. I agree. Being on Zoom like that, it's always, you never really quite know how it's going to work out. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? Is the atmosphere going to work? But I think overall it, it does work really well. And having that sort of roaming camera to really sort of see what's going on um, in between the buildings, everything else was was just brilliant. And like I say, I don't think you really missed out on anything doing it on Zoom, to be fair. The only problem for me was me, I think, because uh, I'm a bit of a technophobe and uh, I had it on my phone. So Zoom works quite differently on a phone to a laptop. So instead of being able to see all the screens at once, I could only see three or four screens. So for me, it was quite difficult. I had to quite, like, be on it all the time, flicking between screens to see people's faces while they were talking or go back to the, the, the roaming cam, go back to the main thing. But uh, at the same time, absolutely amazing considering the circumstances of us being at home during COVID, still being able to play together. I suppose for me, like, I find it quite hard to sort of imagine a terrain, especially someone's describing it to me. I'm trying to picture it in my head. So it's really useful to have the picture of the terrain there and see, like, the distances between characters and and lines of sight and things like that. And knowing where everyone was, not necessarily that my character would know, but me as a player would know where everyone was, was really, really helpful. And then I suppose the other side of that as well is that the GM's then not having to spend time i suppose describing the the environment it's, it speeds up the game a little bit and gives us more time to actually play yeah i think that's a good point because obviously for the listeners benefit as i mentioned at the beginning david's sort of quite new to this he's actually a newbie in every sense really when it comes to this kind of thing so he's really sort of jumped in head first this year it's actually been a real baptism by fire for you hasn't it yeah and i suppose the other thing as well that i suppose we kind of forget is that i have never met Jim and Mark in person so being able to actually you know see their faces on on the zoom chat made it a bit easier to like you know build up a rapport get involved know what people were feeling or how they were reacting to stuff and things like that so yeah it's a it's quite a powerful tool to do this sort of thing with so I, I suppose we're lucky we live in the age we live in and we can do this sort of thing when we're all locked down and we're not allowed to go see each other yeah that's a really good point actually I hadn't really thought about it from that that angle really because obviously graham and i have known each other for 20 years obviously you and graham know each other because you're brothers-in-law and mark jim and i know each other through the sort of gaming side of things but as a group of five we've never actually really come together at all because graham you haven't actually met the guys in person either have you no i think we've been playing what death watch and now inquisitor for i want to say like a year and a half maybe i think we started last summer playing death watch we're, you know, we're four missions in so we're doing quite well and yeah, yes. I still have, uh, I'm still looking forward to actually meeting Mark and Jim in person. I feel like you're, you're not pub trip. <laughs> not I feel like some much. sort of pub trip would be a good <laughs> idea at some point. <laughs> I think we did a good job of like trying to communicate because obviously we know what's going on. We can see the board. We get the whole description of everyone's turn. But I think we did quite well in not letting that influence the character's decisions or anything the character were doing and then using the comms for the characters to inform each other of what was going on in different places of any noises they heard that sort of thing that was a really interesting thing to have to keep in mind especially like uh, you know coming at it as a newbie to keep in mind that the characters don't know what we know and that's something that obviously we're really conscious of in inquisitors we're trying to play our character rather than 
in something like 40k for example where we're the all-seeing eye overlooking a battlefield and moving this unit to intercept that unit or moving this character fight that enemy character and so on so it's a very different approach it's certainly one of the things that i really enjoy about inquisitor and i think we all did it quite well actually Certainly, the GM didn't really pull us up on anything. I distinctly remember a couple of us saying, oh, hang on a second, no, because my character wouldn't know that. And actually, what would my character do, given their temperament or, or whatever? So I think that was really, really cool. And I think it really helped make it a very flavorful mission, really. There's something I wanted to bring up, because, again, being a newbie, the first thing my character did was climb that refinery and uh, sat up there for quite a large majority of the game. And some of the weeks I was sitting there thinking, God, I'm being really boring. I'm not putting anything into the game. I'm not getting him stuck in and involved. But I think, you know, Sarah said it at the end as well. She's like, well, no, that's what your character would have done. He's a gunfighter. He's like, you know, he's not going to get close up and personal and things like that. He's going to hang back. He's going to cover people. He's a mercenary. He wants to keep himself safe while, you know, making a buck. So it was hard to sort of think, you know, I want to I want to just go in and get stuck in. But also being characterful, even though it might not be the most entertaining or interesting thing to do. So it was a it was a really fine line to sort of play like that. And especially first time as well, playing Inquisitor and you know, having to pick up all the rules and everything as well. So it was hard at times just not to jump down from that refinery and just start offloading both barrels i think you did really well yeah you absolutely smashed it i think for your first go you did so much you caused sarah so many problems i think from being up there you supported us i think you utilized the communication if not better but as good as as blaine's james's character as well and i think you're a massive massive asset from being up there the overview popping off shots just at the right time pinning people down it was it was it was a joy to watch actually to be fair it was it was wicked to see that as your first ever go to see you absorb it the game so well uh, something that took me probably a good sort of two years to to pick up and you slipped straight in there and absolutely smashed it and it was it was just made it really fun that's really nice of you to say Jim and the the only way that worked is because of how you guys were if I'd come in and you guys had been like doesn't know what Arco Flagellant is who's this guy you know that would have you know I wouldn't have been able to play effectively but the fact that people were willing to stop and explain things and you know Sarah going over the rules on the fly all that it, it was really inclusive anyone who's starting for this for the first time it's so daunting when you think oh god I've got all these numbers got to remember I've got to remember how much ammo I've got I've got to remember what my guns do what the range of them are and things like that but you guys help massively with that so yeah thank you very much oh it's no problem at all and I think you know one of the things that I always try and remember is we all started somewhere at some point doesn't matter what age we we started doing these sorts of games or whatever we've all been that newbie at some point and welcoming somebody into the fold being open with communication providing relevant information and you know even if it's little odds and sods of background fluff to read up on and things like that it can be really really helpful and as you said, hats off to Sarah for being so willing to stop at a point where something major is going to kick off in a fight sequence and actually explaining how this is going to work with relation to your weapon skill and the modifiers that are going to affect you and things like that, for example. She was really good, I think. She's really good at that sort of thing. And I just think it really helps to 
welcome somebody into the group and as Jim said you really contributed to the group I mean shooting somebody in the groin and taking them out just before they go slamming into one of your buddies to take them down in close combat is no mean feat really so what's worth mentioning for the listeners benefit I think is uh, Sarah actually I nearly said requested but insisted would be a better word insists I was going to say yeah yeah (laughs) insisted that we all actually acted out our communication in real time with accents which was met with some hilarity by all of us so Graham got off lightly because his character is mute but Sarah came up with a really cool way for him to communicate within within the group so basically what she did was Graham's character Aurelia had a wrist mounted sort of touchpad kind of keyboard kind of affair which was tapped into all of our comms and he was able to type any messages and they'd come up as text to speech in the earpieces or for those of us that had bionic eyes we had um like a little mini head-up display which displayed Aurelia's text to us which was great because then we could sort of reply with the comms verbally and she'd be able to hear us anyway so it, it was a really nice little bit of tech fluff that was that was put in there by by the gm the way that graham played aurelia's character worked really well in that respect i thought the other thing i was going to say about that and i'm sure g won't mind me saying it i think for him when he found out that we were going to be doing voices and accents and things there was a bit of trepidation from him about doing that especially playing a female character i think you know he, <laughs> he was there was a bit of you know he wasn't sure how how he would do it or how it would come across so i think that's actually i was talking about inclusion earlier that's actually a really great way to include someone who maybe doesn't feel comfortable doing that and doesn't you know doesn't want to do that and just wants something else out of their game so it was a really lovely way for him to still be able to communicate with everyone well his character to still communicate with everyone and uh but not feel the need to do something that he wasn't necessarily comfortable with yeah and that's a, that's a really fair point you know regardless of how big your gaming group is whether it's just a couple of people or 10 or 20 or 30 you know if somebody's really uncomfortable about doing something then i think it's it's always a good thing to try and be flexible enough to tweak something here or adjust something there just to help that person feel more comfortable and get involved in the game and have fun because at the end of the day that's all we're we're all there for we love the the narrative of it and the making our characters and all that sort of stuff so yeah really good point well made so the way we worked this mission in terms of our characters coming together as a team jim mark and myself already had two years of inquisitor games under our belts working as part of an inquisitorial team so we needed to find a way to get graham's character aurelia and david's character dead eye into the fold into the team so dead eyes was really easy because his immersionary he was just hired in graham's character aurelia was slightly different because although she's a death cult assassin and she could potentially have been used in the same respect as a mercenary we wanted it to be that she was already fighting within the Inquisition on the Inquisition's behalf in some way or another. So she was basically kind of seconded in from other special duties, shall we say. 
It has come to the attention of the Inquisition that all communications from a Mechanicus research facility on the planet of Midrusva 4 ceased 482 standard Terran days ago. Prior to the communications stopping, weekly reports were submitted without fail. The Mechanicus facility is in place on the planet to research ancient human settlements from the pre-heresy era. The facility is currently located on what is believed to be the site of an ancient city in the extreme northern fringes of the planet's greatest landmass. The research is a mammoth task which is projected to take upwards of two centuries to complete. The Ordo Hereticus has taken a keen interest in the undertaking as it is suspected that the planet has been the epicentre of a significant rebellion against the Imperium early in the 37th millennium. They are poised to swoop in should any heretical artefacts or indeed evidence of existing rebellion come to light. As a result of the loss of contact with the Mechanicus team, Inquisitor Smits has dispatched several assets to investigate this sudden silence. It's unknown as to whether heretical elements have taken hold of the planet, or indeed if Xeno incursions may have taken place. Whatever the reason, it's highly irregular for an Adeptus Mechanicus facility to fall silent. The research facility is staffed by 14 tech adepts, overseen by a senior tech magos named Dimitra. As the cause of the issue is unknown, the Inquisitor has sent a mixed team of assets consisting of investigators, negotiators, hunters and, of course, fighters. All characters are at full health, their armour and war gear is intact and in good repair. Player Objectives 1. Insert into the Adeptus Mechanicus facility and establish contact with Adeptus Mechanicus staff if they are still present. 2. Determine the cause of the comm silence. 3. Once the cause of the comm silence has been established, take appropriate action to either re-establish comms or eliminate hostiles. 4. Should any useful data or intel become apparent, secure it and retrieve it for the Inquisition. Message ends. Let's get into it then. So we have our mission. What was our plan, guys? James says with a due sense of dread. It wasn't very good. If I remember rightly, we had identified the Adeptus Mechanicus complex and we were we decided to drop slightly outside the area so we could infiltrate in, I think was our intention. And I think it took us most of the first night to actually get to it. And some of us didn't even make it the first night, or my character didn't until the second evening. It didn't go swimmingly for us all, did it really? Because uh, there were a few issues. No, I, th- I think what we thought was going to be a great plan of trying to be sneaky and not go in all guns blazing kind of just ended up being a sprint <laughs> towards the uh, the complex. And I think my character actually fell over at one point as well on our way in. I think we also sent Brucey and Astrid in first, two of the least stealthy characters. One's got a gut and a warhammer. The other one's got a big metal shield and a cyber mastiff. I think our intention with that was because the preacher and the enforcer were probably going to be the most tactful of the group to to negotiate, given that there was a soldier, a death cult assassin that can't speak, and a mercenary. I think that was why we went for that, wasn't it? Because I don't think Aurelia wasn't particularly built for uh, diplomatic missions. That's not quite her forte, shall we say. (laughs) No, no, definitely not. Apparently neither was Astrid. (laughs) No, it it, it all kind of went pear-shaped pretty quickly, didn't it? So, Given that it was you two that this happened to, Jim and Mark, do you want to give your character's perspective as to what happened? 
the first communication I made to you was, um, be careful, you've not got any armour, make sure you uh, take cover. And then we decided to approach a bit further and we heard uh, some communication come from the first building, which said, like, stand down, show yourselves, or, or, or along those sort of lines. And then we decided to approach further again. I think you fell down the hill while we were sort of sprinting down towards the building. And I think Deadeye was on top of a, uh, like a high up area looking down. And we heard the words, was it Cyberwolf or something like that? Sabretooth. Sabretooth. That was it. So Sabretooth came out. So I think Astrid just took cover right against the, the, the wall of the building. And then I think we heard some more communication issue from out of the building. And I think it was actually Deadeye that basically said uh, sort of over my dead body or something like that along that sort of lines. Well, whoa, 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 whoa. Why am I getting involved now? <laughs> I, all, all I said, all I said was, why don't you stand down? Uh, or something along those lines. There was a significant amount of attitude, though, wasn't there? It was great. It was really good. You know, with the best intentions of going in and communicating with the Adeptus Mechanicus sort of staff that were there, it didn't really happen because when the characters reached the complex, they were challenged, and it kind of all spiralled out of control from there, really. So the Sabretooth thing... So that was that that was trigger words, wasn't it, for some arcoflagellants? It was, was indeed, it? yeah. Who was the first person to engage an arcoflagellant? It was me. I think I engaged both arcoflagellants, didn't I? I think <laughs> you're right, yeah. You're the only one that actually did yeah. it. <laughs> Bloodthirsty he was, yeah. So yeah, I think the first one came out after the uh, the saber tooth command seemed to uh, be the release word for the arcoflagellants into the complex. So I took on the first one, and that one I think I just downed uh, and injured quite badly, but I really didn't kill that one. The second one, though, that was creeping up on her, she did actually kill that one outright. It was an aggressive one, that one, but she, she did well. She proved herself uh, very uh, useful in combat, shall we say. Yeah, just a bit. At one point, weren't you rolling against a weapon skill of something like 130 or something? Yeah, something like that. I, had, uh, I have an initiative of 99. For those who don't know, you have to roll under the, uh, your, a certain score to pass something on uh, a D100, effectively. And so, yeah, so thankfully, because I had such a high initiative, it meant I got a lot of things off. And plus, I had more actions as well because I had such a high initiative. So, as I said in, in the intro, she's very much a glass hammer. But when she's striking first like that, she worked fantastically well. She did a yeah, lot of she, cartwheels as well. She was very, very acrobatic. That was the kind of the Catwoman slash ninja element, I think, <laughs> when I was playing her. She, uh, yeah, she, she, she didn't do things the easy way. There was no just walking somewhere for Aurelia. So we, we're in the complex. Deadeye's up on a higher vantage point, so he's got a good sort of arc of fire. We've got Astrid basically confronting a tech adept. We've got Bruce backing her up. We've got Aurelia starting to engage the first Arcoflagellant, and we've got Sergeant Blaine still manoeuvring around to approach from the south. There's a pretty significant thing that happened next, and it all revolves around Astrid, Bruce, and the Tech Adept. So, what happened, guys? Well, to be fair, I, I thought, though, that the, the, actual, the actual Tech Adept himself was actually rather rather argumentative he wasn't very uh 
forthcoming, was he? In, 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 in fairness to Astrid, although I'm still very sour about this moment, the tech deck wasn't exactly the most forthcoming. Basically, we had, a, we had a bit of dialogue and I asked him outright. I, I pulled my bolus out and aimed my bolus at him. He was like, can you calm down, please? I said, look, you need to answer these questions properly. Like, give us some straight answers here. And bearing in mind, we've just bowled into here with all, all the intention and there's arco flagellants flailing around. And he's like, the, the tech adepts are just sort of here. And I was just like, nah, you're talking rubbish. So I believe none of it. And I think a few of us were in agreement on that one. So I thought, you know what, what would she do? She's going to throw this bolus. And the bolus, for people that don't know what a bolus is, it's like a, a thrown contraption that it's got like a net on it. So it sort of catches you and sort of coils you up and, and sort of entangles you. So I think his sword arm is either his sword arm or his gun, his pistol arm. Because he, he, he was carrying, he was wielding a power sword a some sort of pistol and then he had a, a shoulder mounted bolt gun and uh, it sort of incapacitated him but at that point I threw it and because the cyber wolf was in there with us I believe so I backed out of the room after throwing it thinking I'll just back out regroup and and go from there but I believe he slipped it he he, he rolled high enough on his on his strength and he uh, he slipped the bolus in his turn which was quite frightening and then he's got a. Uh, he brought his weapons to bear, and unfortunately, Brucey was in the doorway and uh, took the full brunt of it. You managed to sidestep, didn't you? No, I was already out the door. I sidestepped out the door into the street and took cover. The person with the big metal shield stepped out of the way, leaving the man with the robes in the way. But yeah, anyway. I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a bit. Mark, I think argumentative was a bit of a strong word, maybe. One of our objectives was to find out what the reason for the comm silence was. So Jim's asking these questions, you know, like, what's going on? You've got arcoflagellants, there's comm silence. And the dude's basically just said, look, our, our comms kit went down a little while ago. It's broken, you know. And Jim's like, nah, I'm having, he does his best Darth Vader impression. You're a, you're a traitor with the Rebel Alliance, you know, all this. And uh, just just starts wailing on the dude. Like, it <laughs> doesn't take any other opportunity to ask this guy, look, what's going on? Come on, give me a proper answer. It just starts wailing. I feel partially like we, we brought it up on ourselves a little bit. Well, I think it's easy to say when you're up the top of a tower, isn't it? When you're actually in a room with someone with a shoulder-mounted bolt gun, a power sword and a heavy gun, <laughs> <laughs> let alone being a tech adept with a cyber wolf stood next to him, I thought, well, I've got two options. Uh, we can either stand there and, and chew the fat or... Uh, and I think it was his, it was his, his comment about, I said, where, where are your tech adepts? And he's like, oh, they're just around. And I thought... Nah, there's acro, acro flagellants flailing around. That's not a tech adept. Like, I was like, oh my goodness. So yeah, I think that uh, at that time I was just a bit. I think I felt the pressure a little bit. To be fair, so yeah, I think you're right in a bit, a bit, David. There, the fact that the, I think the pressure of the situation got to me. <laughs> you, you know, don't get me wrong. I think at that point, um, I shot a few guys in the groin as well. I think I got quite a good good shot in someone's groin at that point so i'm i'm you know i put my hands up probably partly to blame for what happened as well but yeah it was uh it was unfortunate brucey yeah because at that point we had two arcoflagellants in play the tech adept and there was a cyber wolf prowling around my character sergeant blaine was he'd, he'd kind of arrived at this point from the southern approach to the complex and was sort of 
working his way up through the buildings and stuff. And of course, all he hears is things kicking off. There's gunfire. There's dead eye calling over the commune. No, you step down. And it's all just going. And then you hear man down, man down over the comm because Bruce has been shot in the stomach and chest and he's bleeding all over the place and everything like that. So it was all, yeah, it was all going on really. It kind of escalated from there really, didn't it? Because there were people being hit and going down here, there and everywhere. One of the archifagulants was taken out by Aurelia. Bruce was down at this point, I believe. Yeah, I was. Astrid, you were in close combat with the tech adepts, weren't you? And absolutely bricking it. I was sweating absolutely sweating and sarah was making it worse as well with her dice rolls and parrying i was just like if i get hit by this power sword it's game over like absolutely game over but thankfully the dice were on my side and i managed to give him a little uh techno tap on his forehead with the uh shock maul and knock him out that's right you stunned him was it about three turns or something wasn't it that's it um stunned him good a shot out, tried to help Preacher Bruce. I think I stuffed my hand into his chest cavity and give his heart a little squeeze and uh, spent a turn trying to heal him. And don't forget, James, as well, your, your nice heartwarming speech um, <laughs> about the Emperor and stuff to, to get me going. That was, that was fairly epic. I mean, that was a running for US president style speech. It's fair to say that all of us, all of the, all of the other characters were desperately trying to find a way to save Bruce because he was going down and going down fast. And obviously Preacher Bruce and Sergeant Blaine and Astrid had all fought before on various missions. And so there was a little bit of a, a bond there. There's the usual sort of comradely ribbing and, and everything like that. But ultimately they are all a team and they're they're there to work together so my character sergeant blaine took it upon himself to communicate over the vox and just try and give this rousing slightly you know just get up and fight you know kind of thing and try to pluck on the preacher side of, of bruce's character try and invoke faith in the emperor and fighting on and fighting the good fight and all that sort of stuff and it actually worked. And I genuinely wasn't sure that it was going to. You didn't stand up straight away, did you? Didn't, oh, didn't you next... get some wins back? Yeah, it was the next time. Yeah, I think it was the next uh, the next round. It didn't take me long to get back up. And then, uh, yeah, but no, like I said, I think it definitely, I think it definitely helped. So soon after that, if I remember rightly, where my character was moving through the buildings this cyber wolf as previously mentioned just appeared out of nowhere and was coming straight for him my character had a bolt pistol and he basically just shot as many times as possible hit it about three times i think but it didn't actually kill this cyber wolf so in in terms of the the cyber wolf itself the background behind it was it was based on a cyber mastiff that the character that he hadn't met yet had basically just upgraded it and made it faster, bigger, stronger, more aggressive, and it was it was just really cool. 
yeah, this thing was just bearing down on my character. So he, there was no way he wanted to get attacked by that thing. So, yeah, he just opened up. And unfortunately, his bolt pistol jammed. So that was a bit of a tense moment <laughs> for me when I was rolling those dice, to be honest. Was this before or after the explosion? Oh, I'd forgotten about the explosion. It was after. Go on then, David. Fill us in, because it's a bit hazy. Well, from what I remember, and please jump in, anyone, if I get it wrong, we had basically... So Jim had taken on the uh, Tech Adept, basically knocked him out. Brucey was, you know, as we said, he was almost done in, and then Blaine's rousing speech got him back up on his feet. Aurelia had been fighting the Arcoflagellants, probably taken out one, if not both of them by this point. And then this explosion happens from the other side of the compound, just inexplicably. All of us, except for Blaine, may have heard it. And yeah, and we just didn't know what it was. And then I think that that was pretty much when that session ended as well. So we were sort of on a bit of a cliffhanger, not knowing what happened. Blaine didn't hear it. He definitely didn't because he was too far away at that point because um, I'm pretty sure that Sarah made us roll for distance to see whether the sound reached us. That's right, yeah. And then another good use of the comms, I think we said over the comms, you know, there'd been this explosion from the uh, southwest of the compound. And then Blaine, that was when you, yes, because that was when you ran into the Cyberwolf. You were on your way to investigate, right? And it came around the corner at you. That's it. Yes, yes. Then Preacher Bruce, once he was up, he went into, I'll let, I'll let Mark tell you, uh, when he went in to give the tech adept a nudge. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> that was the best bit of the game. I loved it. I just remember walking in, going in and giving a nudge, but he didn't, he didn't wake up. It Am wasn't a nudge. Something? It was not a nudge. You tried to nudge him. Oh, no, I did, didn't I? I smashed him with my hammer, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, no, I remember, yeah, because I messed up my roll. I didn't get my roll right and then smashed, yeah, and then smashed him up with my hammer. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you dislocated his shoulder or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a fairly big nudge. <laughs> it's a powerful hammer. Yeah. It is a powerful hammer. I mean, Belly was being held together with dinosaur plasters, so I wasn't in the world's <laughs> best place. Yeah. I think the best thing about that was all of us were basically just like say, saying to Mark, just nudge him with your foot, just poke him with your foot, don't hit him with the hammer, and whack, hits him with a hammer. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was priceless, pure, pure Bruce. But to be fair, I mean, going back to what we said earlier about playing characterfully, that was absolutely what Bruce's character would have done. Absolutely, because he's so obsessed with his hammer, everything he does is he does with the hammer. You know, well, it's it's not even that though. It's the clumsiness as well. It's the, <laughs> the you know the the rolling down the hill at the beginning, the the getting shot in the belly and almost dying, and then just following up with just trying to nudge someone and absolutely destroying their I arm. Basically, a lot of it, a lot of it is because in Graham touching this very very uh, slightly earlier on was obviously about how uh, how the numbers work and uh, Graham saying one of his things is obviously ninety nine. Obviously, you've got to get less than ninety nine out of a maximum hundred hundred roll, but a lot of Bruce's statistics is is sort of like you know early forties. So for pretty much everything that Bruce does, there is you know a very high chance that he's going to fail it in one form or another. But like I say, it does. It, it makes me like when we first started playing, it was kind of like almost felt like a little bit annoying. Like oh god, I'm such a, I'm never going to make these roles, never going to do anything. But actually, like what comes off the back of it is is like I say, you know, 
like trying to nudge him, but actually then, you know, accidentally actually smashing him with a hammer is just, I just think it's just absolutely brilliant. He passes the roles when it, when it really matters. And that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's why I like Brucey so much. It's his faith in the emperor, mate. That's what it is. I thought you were going to throw a grenade at him. Oh, that's the wrong <laughs> game. It's not for this game. <laughs> that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> yeah. I had to, to excuse the pun, throw it in there. Oh. Mm. Mm. grenade. Mm. <laughs> well, at, at some point, I'm sure um, on the show, we'll talk about our, our Death Watch roleplay. Uh, it's fair to say that Mark's Blood Angel character has a penchant for grenades, but we'll uh, we'll perhaps address that in another section on another show. Oh, he does love a grenade. So we're pretty much getting to a point where we get into the climax of the mission, really. So basically, we've at this point, it's fair to say all we've achieved is getting to the complex. We haven't achieved finding out what happened with the communication. We certainly haven't found anything other than hostility from this particular tech adept, a couple of arcoflagellants, a cyber wolf. We haven't made contact with the senior Magos. We don't even know if he's alive, if he's even around. We just don't really know anything. So we're trying to A, survive and B, work our way through, through this complex and see what we can find out. So if I'm remembering rightly here, guys, and correct me if I'm wrong, but although there was fighting going on, we were actually starting to finally get our investigation kind of brains into gear and start looking for things and trying to figure things out. Well, yeah, we had a bit of a confab, didn't we? And we sort of said, you know, we we kind of need to speak to someone or find something. And, you know, this explosion went off. Um, you met with the cyber wolf and then we all sort of went for the southwest building and apart from bruce who was staring out the window of the uh the building that the tech adept was in i think we all made it there and then we came face to face with the magos that's right because um because blaine was approaching from the southern perimeter so i came in through the bottom end of the building and there was this dude standing there next to a large mechanical device. And then I believe Aurelia joined him. Yes, Aurelia came in through the side door and he was clutching his stomach. That's it, yes. The GM revealed that there'd been an explosion where he was and what he was working on. And he basically had been hit by shrapnel, which is why he's clutching his gut. While Blaine and the Magos were having a bit oh, of a yeah. set to, a bit of a verbal set to, you were making your way down and across. Aurelia had already joined Blaine. Astrid was very close by. That's it. Blaine was having that really like intense sort of uh, conversation with this dude. He was asking you to prove who you were, right? To prove that we were from the being sent by the Inquisitor. That, that's right yeah 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 that was cool that was that was proper tense <laughs> when we were yeah. doing that i was really tense when we were doing it let alone anything else in a nutshell blaine again stated that we were there as an inquisitorial investigation team 
and the Magos wasn't having anything of it. Wanted Blaine to prove his identity, so Blaine pulled out a, a little disc about the side of a, size of Imperial credit, laid it on his palm, and tapped it, and then an, an inquisitorial hologram sort of popped up. The Magos claimed that it, they were easy to fake and it wasn't real, and there was a bit of a Mexican standoff at that point. Blaine said, "You've got you're a tech adept. You've got optics." Um, that's right you know, yeah and so you can you can look at it and and see that it's not a fake yeah so it was, yeah it was just this really tense sort of like oh what's gonna happen the sort of moment it was really quite cool i think blaine gave him gave him two options either move forward to look at it more closely or shut up basically <laughs> um Cop a bullet. The, guy, the, the guy came forward didn't he and he drew his power sword and Blaine shot him, basically. Yeah, and then that's when Deadeye showed up. That's right. And was very infuriated that we were killing everyone who had the answers to our objectives. <laughs> that's right. Yes. <laughs> and then uh Mark, do you wanna do you wanna explain what happened shortly thereafter? That's when you tried to obviously shoot and, and missed. Firstly I nudged the dude. I nudged the dude and I got a successful successful role and got a nice little nudge just to make sure whether he was alive or not and then and then bruce oh brucey was making his way in when he i tried to search him didn't i yeah i think i tried to search him and then i went to check the machine and old brucey was on his way over we've completely skimmed over the machine yeah but the machine was sort of after that right well at this point um, Aurelia had gone over to have a look at it and couldn't really identify it other than to say that it was really, really flipping old. Yeah, and there was a low hum coming from somewhere. Didn't Aurelia get shot in the head? Yeah, when was that? That was before this. It came from behind. Yeah, that's true. The tech adept was already knocked out and was out the entire game after I had that duel with it. And then Mark nudged his shoulder out, so it could not have been the tech adept. It was definitely the Magos. Yeah, with the, with the last pistol, wasn't it? Yeah, you're right, it was. Yeah, because if it had been something more potent, it probably would have killed her. Yeah. We, we've we completely skimmed over the MVP, which is Skane, and, yeah. his, uh, t- and his, t- his two legs. Bless him. Yeah, yeah, his two opposite legs ripped off. <laughs> yeah, and he was, he was, I tell you, Skane was, took some punishment throughout that. Like, he was in the wrong place every time. <laughs> And just soaked up a bit of fire, but yeah, yeah. Losing his two legs was savage. So I think at this point, given that we haven't addressed the poor lad at all, we need to just spare a moment's thought for poor Skane, who <laughs> very nearly gave up his life in service for the Emperor, defending his, his mistress, Astrid. He took a lot of punishment, didn't he? So, well, do, do you want to tell people what Skane actually is to Astrid, Jim? To excuse some of the story, Astrid was brought up on a slave world. She was sent out to take alien, ancient alien art, like technologies and archived information and things like that and bring it back to these slavers that were horrible to her. And Skane saved her life from, from one of these horrible slavers by clamping his jaws around his neck and uh, she managed to escape. But Skane was grievously wounded at the same time. So 
Astrid Oskane her life. So in previous missions, he's taken a bit of damage as well. And she's managed to, to keep his memories in a data sphere she has around her neck. So, yeah, she's, she's very close to Skane. Yeah, because Skane, in his backstory, was actually a real hound rather than a cyber hound, wasn't he? He was, yeah. I should have said that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was a real, real uh, mastiff. And, uh, yeah, yeah she, put, she managed to download his memories and um, put it into a cyber, cyber mastiff. But he tends to take a lot of punishment throughout all the games, actually, doesn't he? And then she manages yeah. to sort of fix him or sort of put his memories back into him and, uh, yeah, sort of a running, a running thing. Or in the case of the end of the last mission, tread on the data orb that contains his personality and damage it so badly it can't be used for quite some time. Uh, that was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, it was, it was priceless. I think if there was any ever a moment where you needed to roll well, that was it, and you just didn't. I think you rolled a ninety-eight or something, which is an automatic failure. I'd rather have taken the Techadet's power sword to the face than stand on Skane's <laughs> memory. That's who Skane is. So at the point where Blaine and Aurelia and Deadeye are in the southern building confronting the magos astrid is on her own private little mission so what was she doing there jim well as soon as she dealt with the tech adept obviously over the comms around that sort of time she could hear blaine having a bit of a firefight with this, this cyber wolf absolute beast that she'd encountered prior now using her um backstory of of hunting for technologies she's always got that as that that always comes to the fore within the missions so, so she sort of discards the uh the primary objectives as as we as we all know now and um shot off to find this this cyber wolf so yes yeah, that, that's what that was what uh, become a sort of primary mission plus game was down to two legs and was looking really sorry for himself so she shot off to sort of grab some bits or confront this cyber wolf and uh yeah, steal some parts what I loved about Skane was the fact that him having two legs, obviously Sarah adapted that and that affected his roles and stuff. So a lot of the time he'd be running around in circles or just looking at you adorably or, you know, just cocking his head to the side and just saying Barrr! or something like that a lot of the time. So Astrid was pretty tied up. For, if, if I remember rightly, it was pretty much for the rest of the game, wasn't it? Just salvaging bits and the GM was making you roll for what you could salvage from him and whether you could take a leg or part of a armor plating or anything to try and patch up skein. Yeah, that's it. And ironically, all the time where I needed to get some decent uh, actions, I think I was rolling like one or two actions every time and then like failing investigation checks and things like that. I was just like, Oh no, I was hoping to like get through that pretty quickly. Maybe just grab a leg or two and then try and get back to the action. But um, that, that wasn't to happen. And I think because Skane only had his two legs and he had minus one speed, so he's only down to two actions. It took him forever to get over. Like, it, it just, it, he just wasn't moving. I think sometimes, I, I think on two occasions, he, he rolled no actions. So he's just right. literally, as, yeah, as David just said, he was like, huh? Huh? like a proper Scooby-Doo moment. Elsewhere in the complex, Bruce was making his way out of the building with the now completely out-of-action tech adept. And he's making his way towards the southern building, which is where the Magos and Blaine and Aurelia and Deadeye are. 
Now, at this point, Aradia has investigated the device and it's established that it's clearly very old, but she hasn't really got a clue what it is because at the end of the day, she's a death cult assassin, not any sort of tech. Dead Eye and Blaine are tied up with the Magos. Bruce makes an appearance and smashes the Magos up a bit more. Bruce comes in and literally destroys this dude with the hammer, so much so, smacking him in the gut so that just bits of, like, you know, intestine and white matter fly through the room and land on Deadeye. Now, didn't didn't Deadeye take some damage? I don't think I took damage. Um... I think I took damage the whole whole you game. You got blood in the eye, didn't you? Yeah, I got it in the eye. It was just a bit disgusting and grim, but I don't actually think I took damage for it. I think I got away. Like my roll wasn't bad enough for me to take damage, but it was bad enough for me to get covered. I think Dead Eye was like dry heaving in the corner. Um, <laughs> you know, it didn't have a good time. It, it, it was pretty grim, wasn't it? We'd established that this guy was actually the the Magos, and we were trying to see if we could. Uh, gets get anything off of him to take back to the inquisitorial ship for investigation and things like that. So I think a few of us took different bits and pieces, didn't we? So Bruce took the staff, didn't he? Aurelia cut off his head and took the head and the power sword, I think. Yeah. And but at this point, Blaine and Deadeye had made their way over to this ancient device having summarised that it really needed to be taken back to the ship to be investigated and so on. And they they basically carried it out together very slowly. And at that point, everything kind of wrapped up, didn't it? Apart from one thing, Sarah made me roll a detection test and I passed it and I made out that the tech adepts had got up and I could, and I just basically saw him as we were sort of leaving. I saw him leave the building and sort of wander in the opposite direction to us. So as the team were extracting away from the area, the now pretty badly damaged Tekadet was escaping, basically. And that was the end of the mission. So that was a real hodgepodge description. But we've kind of taken you through what happened, and there were some really good moments and some, some highlights and some lowlights for, for a lot of the characters. But what it did allow us to do was come together as a group and play a game over the course of three months. It was only once every two weeks and we kept our table set up permanently. So it was just a really great way to spend a few hours on a Saturday night. And yeah, it was really good. So the end result was the team extracted and then an inquisitorial data retrieval team was sent in to the complex to lift any data or technology that had been missed by the team. Basically, there were consequences to the mission. There were outcomes and so on and so forth. Now, David's got the after-action report here. So would you mind sort of going through that quickly, David? Yeah, so just I'll try and summarise it. So basically, like you said, once we were clear of the site, the data retrieval team was sent in to lift any and all data conduits and tech. Everything we took was taken off us, basically. So Magos's head, the, his stave, the sword were all taken to be investigated. 
we learned that the artifact is a uh, section of a data coil from an STC device dating from the 20th millennium. And it, it actually turned out that that was the reason for the breakdown of the communications. It was due to the unexpected recovery of the partial STC artifact. So as uh, I think Jim said, the tech adept got away. So might see him again at some point. And then we got all our benefits, pluses, um, whatever you might want to call them, uh, for playing. Consequences, we got an almighty, um, shall I say, telling off for failing to conduct the mission conduct the mission in a stealthy manner. However, we were begrudgingly praised for retrieving the, the SDC artifact. Excellent. Basically, in summary, what had happened was this STC artifact was found completely unexpectedly as part of this Adeptus Mechanicus sort of dig site. And they basically became utterly obsessed by it. They wanted it for themselves and everything like that. So ultimately, the the Magos and the Tech Adept had worked together and taken out the rest of the Adeptus Mechanicus team. And what had happened was the two Archoflagellants that we fought, incidentally, had previously been other tech adepts that they'd just weaponized, which was a nice dark piece of horribleness. <laughs> Lovely. Um, yeah, so that was why they were, weren't communicating. They didn't want the Imperium anywhere near. That's why they were hostile, and it all kicked off, basically. So in terms of what we got as our rewards, if you like, so my character, I've already maxed out on four abilities so i wasn't allowed to have any more so our gm has set a level of no more than four talents or abilities per character because we're only sort of medium level characters we're not like actually inquisitor level or anything so i'm already on four so i was allowed to upgrade my combat knife to a power knife and she gave me a permanent increase of d4 to my initiative the reason she gave that to me is because my character did a lot of communication and a lot of direction for the team and that sort of stuff so what did she give you mark i add d6 to my weapon skill permanently in addition to that my my great hammer has now been nicknamed the gut smasher um in, in, in acknowledgement of its awesomeness at smashing up guts so i think the reason the GM gave you that was because, of course, that when you came through with that couple of hammer strikes and the Magos, it was so spectacular that there was no way she couldn't give you some sort of reward for for that. So I think that's why she gave Bruce that, which was really quite fitting, I thought. So, Jim, what did she give Astrid? So the GM gave me plus 10 sagacity rolls for cyber animals in general and plus 20 sagacity if it's scanned specifically. So that's that's when you're uh, repairing them. That is indeed, yeah. Cool. That was really good and really fitting, actually. I really liked this bit when I sort of read what she'd given Skane. So, what did Skane get? Well, Skane got an is his last remaining leg, and it's sort of like a a leg from the Cyber Wolf. So it looks a bit of a, a hodgepodge sort of leg on him, but it looks great nonetheless. I think that's a really cool addition to him, really. That's wicked, because, of course, um, Astrid actually managed to salvage a whole leg, didn't she, when she was doing the rolls, rolling for, you know, salvaging and stuff. 
Yeah, I think that was about it, to be fair, because my roles were terrible. I couldn't believe it. For the one time, I actually want, wanted decent roles. I thought, I want to get them and get out of there. And yeah, I only managed to get a leg, but it was good. Brilliant. So what about Dead Eye? What did Dead Eye get? I actually got one additional talent uh, that must be justified to the GM and approved by the GM, which is quite cool because currently I think my current ability is a gunfighter and fast draw, which work quite nicely together. So it'd be interesting to add something else to that mix, see if I want something to work with those two already or if I want something completely different, as long as I can justify it, obviously. And I get a D8 to add to my initiative characteristic permanently. That's really cool. So... I think the reason uh, she gave that, I, I can't remember if she, she stated it on your on your sheet there, but I think she gave that because you'd done a lot of sort of directing what was going on from your vantage point and there was a lot of communication and, and all of that sort of stuff. So again, it was really fitting for what your character actually did in the mission. So uh, I should say, actually, that um, Graham, unfortunately, had to withdraw earlier on this evening because he's had a a bit of a major uh, freezer malfunction in the house. So he's had to go and deal with that. So, But what we can do is tell you what his character Aurelia got. So basically, she did a lot of acrobatic flips and cartwheels and jumping through windows and doorways, and it was really quite impressive. So the GM wanted to reward that really and gave Aurelia this ability called parkour, which basically means that whenever Aurelia needs to perform a movement-based risky action, it doesn't count as a risky action at all, which is so cool for, for, a, for a Death Cult assassin. So in Inquisitor, the way risky action, actions work is when you roll, roll your action dice, you have... For example, I think Aurelia's got six actions, so she rolls six dice. And on each of those six dice, if she rolls a four or more, that's a successful action. Now, the way risky action works is if she rolls those six dice and three of them are ones and one's a four, one's a three, and one's a six, because there are more ones than sixes, that risky action, something goes wrong. You know, she twists an ankle and breaks it or she catches a knee on the windowsill and falls flat on her face or something like that. So now she just completely ignores that. Any movement-based actions are not counted as risky, even if they would be risky to anybody else, which is really, really cool. Well, not only that, but she got another ability on top of that as well. So, yeah, that the, the, the parkour one, ability one is... One that she can choose. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, so she's going to be a, a, a lady to be uh, feared, I think. <laughs> Reckoned with, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, for me, this year, having six of us playing was really interesting this year. Previously, when it, when we first started doing this, it was just Jim, me and Sarah. And then the following year, Mark joined us. And obviously this year, Graham and David have joined us, but... It's really opened out into a nice little group and it's been a, a really good experience and it's been really enjoyable for all of us, I think. I think it's been really, yeah, really good fun. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. It just adds something, I don't know, it's just a little bit different to do, doesn't it? And it sort of makes you think about it more and everything. But I, I really enjoy it. And that's how I can't wait for the next, well, I can't wait for next year now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think for, for me, the fact that it's so removed from what we used to do in in 
in 40k and stuff like that it's just we're playing humans at the end of the day we're not playing space marines or or anything like that so we are playing characters that are like like we are yes we haven't got bionic eyes and bionic limbs and fire las guns and all that sort of stuff but you know we're playing humans which really adds an extra bit of flavor to it and of course it means that you can really expand those characters and make those dark characters as dark or funny or silly or sinister or you know angry or whatever you like really it's just it's just really interesting and uh you know making the characters is a big part of it for me i really enjoy it the scary thing is we've not even scratched the surface of the capabilities of the game either in regards to things like psychic powers, weapons, abilities, but there's like telekinesis, there's all kinds of different things, isn't there, that we that we could come up against uh, going forward in, in, in future games. Obviously, I don't know what the GM's got in mind for next year. It won't it'll be it'll be quite a while before she decides. And the way it normally works is she'll basically say, Okay, right, so we'll allow minor psychic powers this year. Or People can choose a second character or continue with the one they've got or, or whatever, and she'll, she'll put in different parameters before I actually write a mission because then it gives me sort of guidelines to go by. And then, of course, once she's read the mission, she'll say, well, actually, I think we'll do this would be better or that would be better. Let's let's tweak this and we'll do that and adjust adjust bits and pieces. And ultimately, that's the mission that we get as a, as a team. Although I write the, I do write the mission in terms of the 40k background kind of thing. When it comes down to decision making about how many talents a character can max out to, or whether somebody can have an exotic weapon or anything like that, all of that's down to the GM. You know, that none of that's me. So it's it's quite a collaborative kind of thing. I mean, Jim's absolutely right there. You know, we're we're barely scratching the surface really and it's going to be really interesting moving forward and as our characters develop even more as well it could be it could be really interesting so i'm waiting for the day where she says that we can break out the inquisitors themselves or even if we if we'll necessarily be fighting on the same team because that's not to say that won't happen that's true we could have little conflicts within the team or all kinds of different things can we be crazy yeah, it, it could be it could be really, really interesting. But time will tell and we will have to see what happens. So now obviously we we've skimmed over an awful lot of stuff and we've gone off on tangents and we haven't really explained about how Inquisitor works for anybody that's new to this, you know, wanting to get into Inquisitor or, or have a go at playing it or anything like that. We've maybe touched upon a couple of bits and pieces that may sound like double dutch to people, but there are quite a lot of online resources out there. So if you were to type in a search for 54mm Inquisitor, then you'll get some resources come up. That's something else, actually, that we haven't said, that Inquisitor is played on a much bigger scale. You know, the models are 54mm scale as opposed to 28 millimeter scale which is what 40k is so you know the, the models are huge and again you you can do plenty of searches out there and look at some fantastic models that people have made and it just has a, a whole different dimension to it because you're playing on a bigger scale and generally we're not we're not covering whole vast 
swathes of battlefield we're dealing with in this instance in this mission we were just dealing with a adeptus mechanicus sort of research complex so it was all contained within maybe three feet by three feet was the entire table area but because a turn in inquisitor represents about 10 seconds of real time it, it all kind of plays out it's just really really interesting it's a great game and it's very very engaging i think the thing for me is obviously again can't say it enough i'm new to all this i don't know i haven't played 40k i don't know the law i, I was just interested in role-playing games and you know you guys were great enough to just um let me come and join and give it a try and you know have a taste of it but you don't need to know all the background you don't need to know if if you can find some other people who are already playing you don't need to know the rule book inside out you you know go and try a game with some people and if if you find you don't gel go and try a game with some other people i, I don't think you have to be you don't have to stay in a game if you're not enjoying it i think it's a important thing but you know go find a game you enjoy just playing with those people and you know you get along and they're they're patient and they talk to you about it and all that sort of thing you know you can have a really good time and i I did have a really good time playing this game without knowing you know all the background and everything so that's my biggest takeaway is you know you just go and find some people who are great to play with and you know we'll have the patience to explain it to you and you'll have a good time straight from the mouth of a complete and utter newbie which is you know it's great to hear and oh god we, we could have a whole a whole section about getting into different games and trying them out and the different types of games there are and different groups and i mean maybe we will maybe we will one day maybe we'll do a section about that and, you know what, what our thoughts about that are and uh, i think it could be a great topic but that's been really good guys thank you ever so much for joining me this evening i know it's taken us a couple of attempts to to actually get this get this get this recorded but it's been really interesting and good to look back over our inquisitor mission and perhaps bring up some of those highlights and hopefully listeners have enjoyed it as well and i'm sure we'll be reporting back next year and maybe we'll have a little bit more of a deep dive into how inquisitor works maybe before then you know if people are interested in that then of course that's something we can cover in future episodes so thank you very much guys no worries man it's been a pleasure very welcome mate cheers guys it's been great next we speak to graham to find out how he got into the hobby so in our last episode i spoke about my entry into the hobby so getting to know the rest of the guys today we're going to speak to graham and hear his story so graham how you doing I'm oh, good, James. How are you? You okay? I'm all right. It's a bit hot though, isn't it? It's very warm. <laughs> it's, I think I describe. I think I'd use the word melting. Yes, <laughs> as my status update, shall we say? Absolutely. So, how did you get into the hobby then? As if I don't already know. But for the well, list, for the listeners, I was going to say <laughs> you are an integral part of this story, as we will get to. So yeah, as, as a young kid, I made a lot of like car models and was very much into like sort of sci-fi and stuff like that growing up. Um, my uncle actually bought some space marines back in the day. I didn't know what they were at this point. And he let me paint one of the sidecars and the bikes, you know, the old school space marine bikes, not really knowing what it was. It just looked really cool. It must've been about 10, I don't know, 12, something like that. Uh, walked into the local games workshop, looked around, looked all, you know, all very amazing. And then just thought it was cool. I never really, you know, did anything with it. Didn't really know anyone that was into it or anything like that. Fast forward a few years, but we're talking early 2000s, I think. 
uh, we actually ended up being in a band together and yeah. through, a, through a mutual friend. And we got talking. And yeah, I found out you actually played the game. So I piled around yours one weekend. We had a trial game. You let me use your Stormbringers Space Marine chapter. That was your custom Space Marine chapter back in the day. That were very oh, smart. Black, no. black armor with red helmets. Very nice. But, oh, no. What was it called? Dread Reapers, they were called. You're thinking of my Storm Dragons, which is my... Oh, I've got, yeah. I've got two of your custom chapters mixed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, I'd forgotten about those. Man, God, that's been a long time. They were very cool. So you introduced me to like, uh, yeah, Space Marines and all the different kind of uh, parts of the army. So you've kind of got the Tactical Marines and the Terminators and the bikes and the Assault Marines and all that kind of stuff. They were just really cool. And we just, you know, you just over a few sessions, you taught me the rules. And then after that, I think I, yeah, my first army was a Tau army, actually. And then we'd play a few games with a couple of other people that we knew. And then after that, actually, I think it was our first trip to Warhammer World. And I think that was the trip that really kind of sold me on the hobby, I think. You know, we, we, we went up there to Nottingham, um, playing the boards. And again, I had my Tau army. Um, and then some of the boards were just amazing. They were just so cool like there was one that was like canals it was almost like if you imagine like a 40k version of like amsterdam it was all these ruined ruined buildings with canals and stuff and obviously we went to bugman's and all that kind of stuff and saw all the the uh models painted that were in all the uh, codexes and white dwarfs and stuff like that so that trip was amazing that really got me into it it's really inspiring isn't it oh it's fantastic being down there i mean it's very different now i mean even back then it was I mean, it was it was wicked. It was such a good day out, and we I remember we had we had a really good time, and going we into did. the uh, into the shop, we did we <laughs> spending all of our money. Spent the money. I think it was the second time we went to Monte. I think I spent the most money. But uh, I made, I also remember going into Bugman's Bar and having a Space Marine snack as a sandwich. It was amazing. Yeah, I don't know if they still themed, they? yeah. yeah I don't cool. know if they still do that, but uh, that was funny. So, so yeah, so that trip was um, was was pretty big. So I came back having sort of seen a lot of different models and stuff. And then I can't remember how I got into them, but I sort of discovered Chaos Space Marines instantly, being a, a fan of kind of like metal and like just evil things and stuff like that. You know, the, the Chaos Army started to appeal to me quite a lot. You know, they had some really cool units. Um, Obliterators, for example, are still some of my favourite units. I just, the idea of this massive, hulking, mutated, you know, infused space marine that can just morph guns out of his hands is just too cool so yeah i got really into the chaos the iron warriors were the legion for me that really sort of stuck out i think just their look the industrial look they had the way they fought which is the siege warfare and tanks and again lots of obliterators and this is back in the day now i don't know what edition this is i want to say it's fourth edition it was this, yeah, it was yeah fourth, this yeah. was the um the chaos codex a lot of people still talk about this codex as being one of the best ones for the the kind of legion fluff it was where iron warriors could take more obliterators than every, any other legion i think they were limited to like one choice for most armies whereas iron warriors could take um i think it was like two or three and they three, also yeah and they also had access to the basilisk and the vindicator oh, tank which again no chaos horrendous. armies did and it and that was perfect again it fitted their theme at the time you know they were a siege army they were the sort of tanks they would have had and that just really spoke to me and, and that was it. So yeah, the next time we went to Warhammer World, I think we spent a fortune on like Forge World, like uh, Rhino Doors, Land Raider Doors. I bought an Iron Warriors Dreadnought, Forge World Dreadnought, one of the themed ones. And we bought like shoulder pads, like just, just so many spare bits. Uh, the Basilisk conversion you did for your Iron Warriors Army, man, that thing was awesome. 
I love doing all that stuff. And it, it was that part where I found that I actually preferred building models to painting them. I like painting models. Don't get me wrong. It's, you know, quite happy to paint models, but I love the building and the conversion. And I tend to gravitate towards armies that have a bit more uh, customization within them. So again, the iron warriors are perfect because they were kind of like a, a space, you know, chaos army, but they had all the barnic bits and all that kind of stuff. So you can mix uh, parts from the iron hands and stuff like that. So you could really go to town and make some really unique models. And at the time there was an article in white dwarf, uh, about one of the guys who wrote the magazine was building his own Iron Warriors army at the same time. So it all sort of fit nicely. And he'd done the same. He had all these different parts and he showed you how he painted them. I just thought they looked amazing. So yeah, the, the Basilisk was one of the first, especially big kits that I was like, right, okay, I'm not just going to you know, make an Imperial Basilisk and paint it silver and gold. I actually want to make it you know, sort of themed. So I tried to do like the Guardsmen that were like, so they look sort of like Traitor Guard and obviously had spikes all on it and, and then the Chevrons and... Um, I think if I remember correctly, I had a Space Marine loader that had like a bionic arm and he had the uh, the basilisk shell in his bionic arm so he could lift it on his own. Yeah, yeah, that's the bit that, yeah, yeah, that is the bit that really stands out in my memory. Um, it was him holding this massive basilisk shell in his bionic arm. And it was it was such such a cool conversion. It was really good. And then um, yeah, from there I kind of read the uh, the Storm of Iron book. Uh, by Graham McNeil, which is still a plastic. I think they've also just re-released it actually in a brand new special edition, uh, but still such a good story. I must've read that book, I think four or five times over the years. And it's, it just captures the Legion as I see them perfectly. You know, just the way they talk to each other, how they fight. So good. So yeah, that they've, they've sort of always been my favorite Legion. And I've dabbled with others over the years. Um, I had a black Templars army. Cause again, I really like those. Um, a little bit of space wars. I've sort of dibble dabbled in things, had a few Necrons for a bit. I've always quite liked the idea of doing orcs again, just for that customization side of things. So, um, so yeah, so I got quite into the modeling, into the hobby, and I started to read all the books and read the Horace Heresy books. Um, and then I started playing a bit more competitively as well. So I actually started doing some, I went through a phase of going to tournaments. I want to play maybe around fifth or sixth edition now. This is a, you know, a bit, bit further down the road. I also did a couple of the grand tournaments. The first one, I didn't qualify. But the second one, I actually made the final. I was the very last place in the qualification group to make the final. Uh, but I actually couldn't go to the final because I had a family birthday I couldn't, I couldn't say no to. But to be fair, I didn't mind so much because the guy that was one place behind me, we actually had played each other. He was a really nice guy and we were dead equal on points. And I felt really bad. I got through on some sort of tie break. I think we drew as well. So I was quite pleased. I think he got my place. So I didn't mind so much. So yeah, that's kind of my history in the hobby really. And then kind of, in a weird way, sort of moved away from it over the last few years, not for any particular reason, just I think commitments, other things going on, um, sort of missed an edition or two in the middle. Uh, but the last couple of editions I've been trying to follow, we had some games uh, on yeah. the penultimate edition. Uh, yeah, then, seventh edition that would have been, yeah. Yeah, and then, um, so yeah, then sort of, again, dropped out a little bit. And then obviously we had the pandemic hit, so I didn't really do anything. And then only recently have I been getting back into it again. So we've been playing a role-playing game, uh, Death Watch. It's been it's been awesome fun. Uh, I actually had a Death Watch army as well. You know, one of my favourite armies, actually. The Death Watch are amazing. That was the last army I had. You did yeah, some so, really nice conversions in that as well, well if it, I remember rightly. Again, yeah, I literally made every single model was a custom model. It literally took me ages to get that army because I would I didn't I only bought a couple of the Death Watch box sets because they were great box sets for pieces and people like me that just like building stuff. And then I spent like months on websites just ordering like just you know custom parts of space marines just to make like the salamander look like a salamander and a space wolf like a space wolf and and all this kind of thing 
So, uh, yeah, again, another one I actually love building. Um, yeah, and the pandemic hit, so I didn't really do anything. And then just, yeah, just recently I've been getting back into it. So um, I've picked up some models from you, helping you out, paint some models, which has been great fun. I'm really looking forward to getting those. You've been doing, so um, for, for the listener's benefit, Gray's got my Phobos Primaris Marines from my Storm Dragons army. So, uh, yeah, you've got a little batch of those you're working on for me. Yeah, I have to say, actually, the Primaris Marines are amazing. I do really like them because as much as I'm a Chaos fan, I do quite like a lot of the um, Imperial Space Marine like, chapters as well. Like the Space Wolves are one of my favourites, um, which is one of the reasons I picked a Space Wolf character in our Death Watch game. Um, I quite like the Imperial Fists because obviously they, I like the, the few they have the Iron Warriors and they fight in a similar way. But, um, but yeah, the, the, the Primaris models are very, very smart. And at one point I was sort of tempted but uh, I'm holding out to see what the new Chaos Codex has to offer. So we'll see. Keep those fingers crossed for your uh, for your Iron Warriors uh, supplement keep, keep there, the, I think. Keep the dark face. Iron within, iron without. Mate, that's been brilliant to hear your, hear your story and how you got into the hobby and everything. So thanks very much. I think what we'll have to do at some point is when we've got the whole gang together is we'll have to do a section on the on the Death Watch roleplay we've been doing. So I think it'd be really cool to talk about that and, talk about why everybody chose their characters and so on so if you're up for that then uh, we'll, we'll do that at some point i think absolutely no i'm more than happy i love my character i've got really into my character uh, spoiler alert yeah he's a, he's a rune priest and uh, yeah. he's just fantastic i love playing him and just the way he trying to think how he thinks i just thoroughly enjoy that so it's like okay what would i do hang on no it's not what i would do it's what he would do so whereas i might hang back he would charge in for example so that's been really good and yeah, it'd be great to discuss it, actually, because I think the rule set that you came up with has been brilliant. It's like a hybrid of D&D and 40K, and it's been great fun. So we should definitely talk about it. So, yeah, I'm more, more than happy to get involved. We'll definitely do that, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. That's awesome, Grace. So thanks very much for your time for today, and uh, speak to you soon. I'll speak to you soon, mate. That was episode two of the Plus One to Hip podcast. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe to the show. If you'd like to get in touch or have a disability and would like to come onto the show to talk about your hobby journey, you can email us at plus one to hit podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook by searching for plus one to hit podcast or on Instagram and Twitter by searching for one to hit podcast. I've also included the links in the show notes. Until next time. May the dice gods be with you.